Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garrisimovich, a PhD student in Russian lit. This week, you know, the usual. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Cameron Lalana, and as usual, the Tolstoy boys can't do things separately, so I am also recovering from COVID this week. That's so right. if I sound gross, that's why. Right. Were you were recovering two weeks ago, yep. or two episodes ago, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Another fun news in my town, there's an active serial killer here, and uh, one of the more recent killings, I think a week or two ago, was in the neighborhood I just moved out of last month, mm. so that's exciting. Mm. <laughs> Do you think it's, he was targeting you? No. Well, I... I okay, so I, I'm, I'm an inveterate night runner. Traditionally, when I lived in Davis, I like did night runs for mm -hmm. like three years running sure. at like 11 to 1 p.m. any given time, and I considered taking it up when I moved here to the city, but then I decided maybe not. Sure. Uh, maybe... I think that's, that's proven to be a good decision. Yeah. Well, when we turn into a true crime podcast and we try to bait the killer <laughs> into getting Cameron, we'll, uh, we'll let you know. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep you updated. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a podcast for me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our uh, serial killer or not related weeks with some Russian literature and a <laughs> drink or two. This week we are doing, this is part nine of Stalingrad? It is. That's oh, wild. We've come. Gosh. We've come so far. Wow. You know, it it was a joke when we started that this would be our, our longest series ever, but it worth, it's worth it. It is. It's been great. It's been, it is the longest series ever, and it it's might be been, it's a, a little series longer. It's the longest anyone has ever made, ever. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't think of anything that's ever gone longer in my life. It goes um, like Sergei Bondarchuk with multiple parts of War and Peace, like mm. eight hours of War and Peace, <laughs> and then like right below that, there's us, Tipsy Tolstoy Boys, with 10 hours of Stalingrad. Yes. And he oh, gets a little bit hours. extra just because of the artistic flair. Um, right. of the eight hour war and peace but we're not far behind i would say no in terms of like artistic vision and general i would say like creative genius oh undoubtedly, uh, undoubtedly. I, I easily parallels unparalleledly yeah <laughs> <laughs> i would say we're right there uh-huh mm -hmm. me too so anyways so anyways, uh, Matt, speaking of uh, delusions of grandeur and the things that might produce that, uh, Matt, I got to ask you, what are you drinking today? <laughs> I'm on approximately my fourth Jack and Coke of the evening. Hell yeah, brother. Yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. That's that's what I got. It's it's nothing special. It's nothing crazy. It's kind it's of a good um, workhorse. the personal brand, really. Mm -hmm. what, what Jack do you have today for us? Just Jack. Just Jack? Jack? Jack. Our friend Jack Daniels? Our friend, uh, yeah, Jack Daniels. Large bottle nice. Jack Daniels. <laughs> and standard issue Coca-Cola. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. I am, I'm envious. Mm -hmm. I, I, miss, I miss whiskey. Yes. Uh, what flavor V8 are you drinking to heal? <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I am drinking a low-sodium V8 to heal today. Baby. <laughs> On a scale from I'm, one to Yeltsin, how low of sodium are you? <laughs> Uh, oh, oh man, I am easily a one. I my my sodium intake has never been lower. Wow, that is good. That's good. yeah. My blood pressure is thanking me. Yeah, it's probably good. I think this one week in in our lives was good for us. Yeah, because usually it's like banging in my head like a drum, like just all day, like I'm being hit with a hammer. But right. now it's gone quiet, so I think that might be a good sign. Yeah, it's it's one of the worst sicknesses in a while <laughs> I've had, but the healthiest yet my body has been. <laughs> oh you mean the covid yeah yes yeah. yes yes it's a lot of my body to burn off i think years of bad bad decisions 
<laughs> so you can go right back to making them afterwards. Right, sure, sure. Now guilt-free. Yeah, yeah, like immediately. <laughs> well, I look forward to I look forward to doing the same. Yeah, it's it's good. But Stalingrad. Stalingrad. How are you feeling about it? Now that we're nine parts in, I I I'm not excited to come to the conclusion, but you know, a little sad. Yeah, I said that last episode awesome. like I was I was saying like I was ready for it to be done. Not because I'm not enjoying myself, but it's just like I kinda know. Mm-hmm. How do you wrap this up as a writer? <laughs> <laughs> How do you wrap up your book about the Siege of Stalingrad wherein you have barely touched on the Siege of, siege of Stalingrad? Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolute incredible maneuver from on, on Grossman's part here. Yeah, like I mean Tolstoy does it with two epilogues, but what does Grossman do? Well, well, we'll have to find out. Well, we and well, actually, you'll be finding out mostly next week. So. Right, right, right. But this week. But this week, uh, before we get into the reading, our book recommendation of the week is um, kind of related to the war. Mm-hmm. So this, it's, I'm actually currently reading this one. Uh, this is a surprise to Matt. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, recommend The Unquiet Ghost, Russians Remember Stalin, which is primarily, it's by Adam Hochschild. It's primarily about the gulags, which happened before and after the war, and the way that um, the Soviet people in the late 80s, early 90s remember it. However, I am bringing it up in this case because, well, it kind of is relevant to the transition of thoughts that lead to the creation of life and fate and its differing focuses compared to Stalingrad, but also because... It does relate to a lot of the, the soldiers of the Soviet army who would be captured by the Germans, not saying that that's going to be necessarily relevant to this part, and some of the fates that they suffered after the war, given that a lot of soldiers who were captured were suspect of having been made into turncoats, uh, such as um, General Vlasov and the Vlasovite uh, anti-Soviet army. So it's a, it's a fun read going through. Oh, well, fun's the wrong word. It's an interesting read. It's pretty quick, all things for like only 250 pages or so. And it's pretty informative. And if you wanted to hear more about uh, Kalima, uh, this, this is the book for you. If you oh, Or the other thing for you is obviously Kalima Tales uh, or, you know, our episode on Kalima Tales linked in our show notes. That's a good one. A long time ago. A long time ago. We should go back to some more Kalima Tales. As someone on YouTube once pointed out recently. Very informative episode, horrible pronunciation. And I think I'm willing to accept that. <laughs> yeah, I'm willing to admit that I didn't know how to pronounce Kalima during that episode. And that's okay. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> Probably. Probably. Well, I'm, it's, it's fine for me. I'm, I'm not an active grad student. For you, a hmm, little suspect. They didn't say whose pronunciation was horrible. It probably was me, but they didn't say. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we could say we can, we can yoke the burden equally. Isn't that what we're all yes. about here? Yes, it is. It is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about part nine of Stalingrad. My God, please. <laughs> Let's finally get to it. So we're uh, opening this part with a little bit of a follow-up on, on the end of part eight. We had uh, Dorensky and Borozkin and many other members of their of the Rodimtsev's uh, guards regiment, as well as a penal battalion accompanying them, going towards Stalingrad. And really the fight at Stalingrad at this time is just to hold off the Wehrmacht for long enough for the relief army to get there. Of course, Borozkin stays back for about a day and, and leaves the guard regiment behind for a time because he finds his wife Tamara and his daughter in the chaos of the people retreating from the city. 
And so now we, we join Duransky alone, so to speak. Well, act, no, actually alone. Uh, since he's, he wasn't technically attached to these, this division, he was just among the officers who no longer had a placement and were being brought forward. So Duransky is now at the Southwestern Front uh, HQ, and he's basically just waiting for orders. Uh, he's placed in a hut with some junior signal officers who just absolutely, he cannot stand. The, he abhors them. They are so absolutely dull. All they do is they go to work, they come back, they sleep, they play cards, they eat fish out of cans, and he cannot stand their life because they're not doing exciting things. Like, well, for him, exciting things constitute talking about women, which they don't want to do. They just want to play cards. And so he can't stand them. He reflects at some point, at some level, it's really just his bad mood over really not knowing what's coming next for him. Because he, he's put in his, his paperwork. Uh, remember, recall that Duransky was part of General, uh, not, I believe General, General Bikov's uh, staff, and Bikov being the general who Novikov was also serving under prior to, to create a tank regiment. So Duransky is, is a pretty well-established officer, has a lot of experience. However, as I believe we mentioned last time, prior to the war, he was sent to what's, well, it's it's kind of danced around, but he was essentially sent to a camp and was only released shortly before the war. And so after a long time of waiting, he's finally assigned to an artillery division, which is of a great surprise to him because that's a frontline work, that's exciting work, that's important work, that's exactly what he wants to be doing. And as he receives the orders from from a, an adjunct that Band kind of gives him a, a, a kind of a wry look and says, I bet you expected less from us bureaucrats to make, keep you waiting here forever, as was the case with, uh, for example, Novikov. Duransky basically shrugs and says, yeah. And then the bureaucrat, the adjunct says, well, you know, even us bureaucrats have some sense of, of quickness in this war. <laughs> Before being transferred, we go over to the perspective of Colonel Agaev. Agaev is the commander of this artillery regiment. Uh, he's very old-fashioned. He's got two kids in the humanities. Man, this dude hates it. This guy uh, has single-handedly <laughs> gutted all of the humanities, actually. <laughs> he's got it all the he's tried to gut all the humanities in his family. It's noted that to make his daughter appreciate warfare better, he used to take her to a, a, a gun range like every Saturday, and then she married a director, and that greatly upset him. <laughs> Can we say father of the year? <laughs> yeah. This man is leading in all accounts of like childhood trauma. <laughs> yeah and well semi-relatedly uh, just a funny funny line here his feet were so small that his wife had to buy him his shoes from the childhood department of the army store a dreadful secret that his adjutant had uh, divulged to everyone at artillery headquarters good <laughs> um so this part is mostly made up of uh, i will say the tension between stalin's not one step back order especially General uh, Yermenko, who is the leading the Stalingrad front and the practical concerns of the officers. Agaev, for example, his guns are currently on the uh, are currently on the West Bank, or to say, basically in the city. And those guns are being harassed by snipers, by submachine gunners, by sappers. Half the time, he cannot even get rounds out because they, his crews are so concerned with the attacks from, uh, from soldiers. And he goes to request that they be moved back to the West Bank, but he, those, that request is put in with many other officers who just want to move back, who Yermenko is basically accusing of being retreatists. And the book kind of implies that many of them are, but Agaev, in this case, was actually had a very legitimate reason for it. And after giving, being given a dressing down, he gives the order for it to be done anyway. And the guns are moved across the river to the East, to bank, the east yeah. bank, where they 
begin to be able to have more of an effect now that they're no longer being directly harassed by uh, German snipers or sappers or submachine gunners, which when a guy goes to report that, expects to be well more or less dressed down, but uh, finds that Yurimanko, despite have giving uh, a guy of last time for even suggesting it an absolute yelling, worse it's it said than anyone else who made a request to move back across the river. He merely looks at it, uh, looks the at the outcome, and congratulates him for doing a good job. Then invites him to go to the banya later. Uh, so Duransky arrives, and he's immediately put to work. It's noted restless and anxious as he always was. Agayev felt upset when his staff slept at night, ate at lunchtime, or rested after finishing work. <laughs> so barely has he arrived here before he's assigned to go up before dawn to check on uh, the assignments of the artillery to make sure they're all set up. Um, and to make sure that everything is going well. Before he heads out, he writes a letter to his mother, which he uh, relates to pretty much everything that's happened to him. So this is where we leave the artillery unit for now. And we go to a bird's eye view and you find on the 10th of September that things get worse for them as the German army attacks from the north, west, and the south. And although the south is repelled, uh, the north and west fronts push through into the city. And until counterattacks can happen, they are just sweeping through. Choikov is in the city, has to move his HQ three times in, in only a few days. And at, by the end, by the 23rd, they basically hold nothing left in the city. They are holding a small strip right in the Volga, as well as a few other areas. They have some of the south, but the for all intents and purposes, the Wehrmacht essentially controls the city. And so we, we go from here to a, a, a worm's eye perspective of Choikov in his bunker, where it's under constant bombardment. It's, it's dark, it's dirty. It's noted there are moments when this cramped bunker seemed almost like the cabin of a steamer on a rough sea, and Choikov felt almost seasick. I hated that description so much. Oh, yeah? As someone who does not do well out on water, mm. I, I hated that description so, so much. Definitely, um, it was good, yeah. but it was um, it was hit too close to home for me. <laughs> yes, this is fair. Which I, effective writing in that case. Mm -hmm. uh, he's later joined by uh, two others: divisional commander uh, Commissar Kuzma Gurov, and as well as his chief of staff Kurilov, uh, and they discuss the war and uh, the battle as it's happening. At one point, uh, Choykov jokes, "So here we are for our sins in Stalingrad." And as they discuss their dire situation, uh, basically being that they have to attack or being told to attack or know that they have to attack because otherwise they're going to be overwhelmed, but just keep saying, well, what can we do? We've got no troops to attack with. Every day, I have fewer and fewer. Luckily for them, the troubles are somewhat assuaged by the arrival. It's by, uh, as it is noted by an adjutant to them, by General Redemptive's forces. So as the uh, Redemptive's guard approaches the city, uh, we get an image of of what they are, well, sort of feeling. In, in Grossman's typical fashion, we get sort of a suggestion of what they may be feeling. It's written, Throughout these long minutes, the men were silent as they approached the city. Uh, well, this is, sorry, this is after they have more or less arrived and they are waiting to go across the Volga. Throughout these long minutes, the men were silent. Only occasionally did anyone say a word. There was nothing the men could do. They could neither shoot nor dig trenches, nor rush into the attack. They could only think. There were young men, and fathers of large families, city dwellers, men from worker settlements around huge factories, and men from villages in Siberia, Ukraine, and the Kuban. What was it these men shared? What brought them together? Is it possible to find a common element in the world of hopes, fears, loves, regrets, and memories of those thousands of soldiers? 
And in, in similar typical Grossman fashion, this is not merely a rhetorical question, but one is uh, setting up to be answered in this section. <laughs> I love that about him. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, it's it's not only a rhetorical flourish, but this is also a work of, so to speak, propaganda in a way. This is a question to be posed to us to be answered by the text. So we rejoin Vavilov, our boy, Pyotr. And he is crossing uh, on a barge, and everyone as they go across are deeply afraid of this because at any given time, a Messerschmitt could come by and drop a bomb on a barge and kill everyone aboard. I mean, even if they, even for those of them who can swim, they are so covered in ammunition and grenades and guns that they wouldn't be able to. Uh, as they arrive, uh, one unit arrives to see another right before them drowning silently as their boat has been hit by a bomb and uh, too laden with, with equipment, they're unable to swim. The fear that has a hold on Vavilov is deep in him, uh, deeper than it's been noted before for someone who, as we find him for the most part, has been noted for his bravery. But as he watches the approaching Stalingrad, it, something occurs to him. Everything dear to him, he realized with anguish, lay to the west, where this tugboat was dragging them. There, ahead of him, were life, his native earth, his wife and children. Behind him lay only orphanhood and yellow dust. The roads of the East Bank would never take him back home. If he were to follow them, his home would be lost forever. Here, on this river, two paths had met, only to part once and for all, as in the fairy tales he had heard as a child. And as they, they approach the city, he can't see any people and just sees a, a torn down place. And it's noted, Vavilov understood that here in Stalingrad, he was being given back the key to his native land, the key to his home to everything most holy and dear. For Vavilov, this was all clear and simple, and thousands of other soldiers may well, in their heart of hearts, have felt something similar. So in answer to that last question, what do these many people all across, from all across the nation feel? Uh, well, it's that our homes lay to the west, uh, Grossman suggests, well, with the exception of those from Siberia, um, but <laughs> that's neither here nor there. It's a nice moment. Mentioned he's talking about boats which are capsized. General Dimsev, when he's crossing, he crosses with a boat right behind them with the signals division. A measurement comes by and drops a boat on that bomb, killing almost everyone aboard. But Verdimsev himself manages to escape very narrowly, actually being harmed in this. Vavilov, who is not our Vavilov, our boy Pyotr Vavilov from a village, uh, Vavilov the Muscovite. Yeah, I can't uh, believe I they did his... this to me. <laughs> he didn't need to, there was other names. No, it had to be. Yeah, there had to be, to be another right. Vavilov. You're right. It wouldn't have made a Grossman book without introducing a new character who has the same name as another <laughs> character who only appears like once every 400 pages. Mm -hmm. <laughs> True. So Verdimsev meets with his with two of his staffers, Vavilov and uh, Major Belsky, who is the chief of staff in their new Stalingrad base, which is really just a room in a in a, in a house at this point before they are able to dig any trenches or make any bunkers. Now, Belsky is the subject of a bit of ridicule. It's written about him, Belsky was the subject of many fanciful stories. One such story had a German tank positioned on top of the headquarters bunker, slowly crushing it with its tracks, and Belsky, half-crushed himself, shining his flashlight onto the map and drawing a neat diamond with the note, Enemy Tank on Divisional Command Post. Anyway, I admire Belsky. King. <laughs> So as they approach, Belsky has already had the troops there start setting up defensive positions, digging trenches, digging places uh, for them to take cover. And they are truly on the bank of the Volga. Although they are on the west side, they are, it's noted, like maybe five meters from the water. So they are, are truly have their backs against the wall. 
And Redemptive is is really irritating. He's walking around. It's really unclear to everyone why before finally he kind of goes out and looks at it and says to them, look, we've got no communication set up here. Uh, there's no hope of setting up communication here. We're only five meters in the water. We can't do anything with this position. If we're attacked, we're going to be crushed. And so Velsky asks, well, what do we do? And then Redemptive responds, what must we do? Redemptive asks quietly, as if affected by Belsky's habitual calm. Then, loudly and emphatically, he went on. We must attack. We must break into the city. We have no other option. They're stronger than us in every way. We have only one advantage. Surprise. We must make the most out of it. In the following pages, we follow the chatter of soldiers as they realize that the order is coming down the pipeline to attack, which is interesting as it's reflected in getting just, it's like one sentence at a time. You're getting one snippet and then you move on to another conversation of, oh, uh, we get more chocolate rations today. We must be on the verge of an attack or other minor things like that without actually having been told that they're going to be attacking soon. After a long day of getting ready for this, the three officers, uh, Rodimtsev, Vavilov, and Belsky go outside and look at the Volka, quietly conferring about their plans for the day. And then towards the end, still gazing out at the river, Rodimtsev then said something very surprising. The last thing a subordinate expected to hear from his commander immediately before an offensive. I feel sad, Belsky. I've never felt so sad before. No, not even when we lost Kiev or Kursk. We've come here to die. It's only too clear. Behind them, the burned-down city was silent. So soon they are going to be attacking, and actually here, chapter 26, I'm going to be reading the entirety of it, uh, because I think it provides a great character moment. It's only uh, three paragraphs, or two paragraphs actually. It focuses on a Choikov, who is given the approval for this attack. Choikov had been informed about the crossing by early evening. Redimsev had reported in person at 2200 hours, and Choikov had signaled the order for the attack. Then, at midnight, he received the head of the special department and the chairman of the army tribunal. They had come with reports on two commanders who, in spite of the not-one-step-back order, had transferred their HQs to Zaitskevsky and Sarpinsky Islands. Breathing heavily, Troikov took a pencil and pulled the documents towards him. That's it for now, he said. You are dismissed. He paced grimly about his bunker for some time, then sat down on a chair ruffled his hair, and sticking out his lower lip, stared intently at the pencil with which he had signed the papers. He sighed, paced about a bit longer, unbuttoned his collar, punched his neck, and ran one hand over his chest in the back of his head. The bunker was airless and full of smoke. Troikov made his way toward the exit, through the tunnel where his adjutant lay asleep. The greatcoat covering the man had slipped off onto the floor. Troikov turned on his flashlight. The man's lips were half open, and his childish face looked very pale. Choikov wondered if he was ill. Choikov picked up the greatcoat and laid it back over the sleeping lieutenant's thin shoulders. Mama, mama, the lieutenant called out in a strangled voice. Choikov stifled a sob and walked quickly out of the bunker. This is, it's even barely three, two-ish paragraphs we see a really complex moment of sadness from Troikov and you know with certain characters we are able to get inside their heads and I suspect more more often than not when we are with characters who and I, I can't remember it's, it's hard to track which characters are real people which ones are invented I think Troikov might be real we often don't get into their heads as much they're they're projected from the outside even if the point of view in this part is from there more or less uh, so it's interesting to see this sort of vague sadness maybe from the attack maybe from having to sign the probable death warrants for those commanders who had uh, moved their HQs to those islands and the kind of repressed emotions he feels about it and the, I don't know, almost loneliness of it. 
Yeah, it's part of that like middle, not lull, but uh, the middle part of this section that we're reading where he kind of breaks into the shorter chapters, mm-hmm. which I liked. Yes. It was kind of the um, calm before the storm, if you will. Right. Because uh, this part, yeah, as you say, is part of many short, I guess, vignettes almost of Choikov that night of a commissar not able to give a a speech to his soldiers, uh, instead telling the story of him taking care of his mother in in Stalingrad. Yeah, it's a nice way of, like, very, it focuses on the human stories of the attack. It's not about the tactics or, you know, the equipment. It's about the individual feelings. Later it is about the tactics, but not now. Not now. So following this, uh, we, we go to a bird's eye perspective again, and we kind of roughly go to a, a German hive perspective where uh, Germans at this point have already uh, reported that they've taken Stalingrad, that it's our city. And really, it's pretty understandable. They occupy pretty much everything absent for, like we've mentioned, a thin strip on the Volga. But even the contestant parts that they're still fighting, they expect to take soon. And so it's noted this is Part of the reason why Redimsev's strike that very night was such a success. So from here we go to a battalion led by Senior Lieutenant Flyashkin, who has pushed deep into the city. Now, uh, at this point, the fighting for them at least is over at this point. They are at a, a nearby train station, and they're just kind of taking stock of where they are, of how far they've gone in. And one of the third companies part of, that's a part of this battalion is uh, the, led by Kovalyov. We all, of course, remember Kovalyov, who attended the... Shaposhnikov family dinner so far so long ago and uh and this is a moment of minor levity filiashkin asks kovalyov how he's doing and kovalyov says i killed nine people i'm uh, you know killed nine people in the, in the fighting and then it immediately says afterwards he had killed three germans two more had fallen to the ground but he did not know whether or not they had been killed he wondered why he had said nine he must have just wanted filiashkin to know what a daring young fellow he was that Lena Gnatyuk had spent the night with Filyashkin was neither here nor there. So we learn more about Filyashkin, about his uh, staff. As per usual, you cannot get away from learning about anyone without learning about all of their staff. Uh, as they're going through this, uh, a runner comes by and tells them that counterattacks are being expected from the Germans. Uh, Filyashkin pretty much knows that they really cannot hold out here for long. They only have two days of supplies, but... They can't go backwards, and this, they've pushed forward this far so long, so they give the only order they can, and they begin to dig in in that uh, train station. And so the units begin to dig in, and we follow, again, many of their stories uh, going from one to the next. Uh, of course, Vavilov is here, the our Pyotr Vavilov. Uh, he's there with the many others who were who've noted Usurov, who is the one who is bullying many people along the way, who Vavilov finally stood up to and made stop. They've dealt with close almost paternal relationship and Usarov tries to trade Vavilov for chocolate and Vavilov insists that he's going to save his chocolate rations for his daughter who he says have never even seen chocolates like that and everyone feels good actually they're they're getting ready they're digging out positions they feel ready for this Kovalyov he's sitting his corner they've already dug out their areas so they can shoot through the walls of this train station and he begins to go through his things uh, he's got a tobacco pouch made out of uh, his sister's dress which she sewed for him got a notebook full of poetry and songs where he has tickets and other things from his time in Moscow. Despite his you know, tough attitude, he has a bit of sentimentality about him, including uh, some uh, a picture of a, of a woman who it, you know, uh, he seemed to have some sort of relationship with. Before we, we leave them, we kind of have a, a moment in which we again reflect on what Stalingrad means. Uh, and the narrator writes, Only in Stalingrad did Pyotr Semyonovich Vavilov come to understand what war truly meant. A huge city had been killed. 
Some buildings, however, remained hot from the fire. As he stood on sentry duty in the dusk, he felt the warmth still breathing deep in the stone. To him, it seemed to be the living warmth of those who until recently had lived in those buildings. So I think we talked about, maybe this is, I want to say at the end of part two when Stalingrad begins to be bombed. And I, Matt, you brought up how Grossman gives such a life to this city being destroyed, even though it's, he mentioned it's not as important as, you know, even an individual child, all these buildings, still it is weirdly humanized. And in this part, it feels like it developed in that it's, you know, it's not just that the houses are are just just structures, but the structures are things that contain the people who live there, and they still have a presence of those who have left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's weird to um, think about in this part. I feel like the the part that he kind of hammers in on is the silence of war, mm-hmm. and the fact that they're fighting in what is such a kind of major city is is weird to think about. That the eeriest parts of the war are when there is no sound. I feel like Mm -hmm. we've talked about how he does so well kind of describing the other senses that are involved in war. We've talked about everything. We've talked about hearing as well and and the sounds of planes especially I feel like are really present in all of the war scenes. But just the silence and and in this part how that's kind of the the scariest part of the war is when there's no sound. And um, yeah, kind of horrifying. Yeah. I think he also really harps on that point at the beginning of this chapter. He writes that uh, soldiers who are worth their salt, more or less, uh, take no noticed premonitions and that many people who wake, wake up in the night in war say, oh, I'm going to die today. I know it. More often than that, they're fine. It's the days when everything seems like it's going to be fine when you've yeah. got no uh, notion and no idea that their death is coming when it tends to arrive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was an interesting line. So from this point, we naturally switch our perspective to the to the German Wehrmacht in the city. We join the German Grenadier Battalion, and with as well as the its its leader, Captain Prefi, uh, one of the members of this Grenadier Battalion. You may recall is Major Bach. Bach is the uh, soldier we accompanied briefly in our sojourn to Berlin a while back. Who was the one who was there for to on, on leave to go see his friends, family, and he appears to not much like anyone in the city. Now, this part, it's really interesting. Of course, in the the German sections, you know, although very well researched and as far as we can tell, an earnest attempt to explain Nazi ideology is, of course, from the perspective of, uh, you know, a Soviet author and a Soviet Jewish author at that. Uh, that being said, I think it's it's a very extremely well done section about the theory and ideology and it, as well as of course, getting in the ideas of how class struggle still continues under this society and even in the army, which I found really interesting about these parts. I like this part. I thought it was a nice kind of bookend, I guess, to the Nazi part. Like, it would have been kind of weird if we just had that one random part in the middle where he switched to them and then right. never kind of returned to them. It would have seemed kind of unnecessary, I guess. I mean, it still would have been interesting, but it wouldn't have kind of tied together, I guess, as well as what he does here. Right. Which is a pretty thorough examination, I thought. I mean, it's a lot of pages to spend at the end of a book that should be about the Soviets winning, (laughs) which is instead about the failure of the Nazis. Right. And yeah, this is definitely, as you might imagine, that what follows is going to be, and we'll cover it obviously in more detail, is the similar vignettes to what we get on the for the Red Army. 
uh, a lot less charitable for the Wehrmacht, as you yeah. might understand, yeah. or the character of the people fighting in the war. Although that doesn't go the same for everyone. There, there are people who are exceptions to this, notable ones. And there are levels, too. It's not charitable, but as we know, Grossman was a consummate humanist and himself was all, always, even during the war in his writing, took pains to separate the idea of, of German people in what we would translate as Hitlerites. And unlike other writers in his time, refused to kind of condemn German people as a whole and sort of saw it as like, a, as you might see in this book, not the individuals who are at fault, maybe so. I mean, individuals are at fault for their own actions, but the, like the whole nation being sort of captured, it's like truly like being captured. It's, it's, there are people who are suffer under this, mm-hmm. who are spotlighted in this, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. So Captain Prefi uh, is the leader of this Grenadier Battalion, and everyone, as it's been noted, is pretty certain the war is just about to be over. That as soon as they capture Stalingrad, they think, okay, the British and the Americans are going to give up. There's no more resistance in Russia, or excuse me, in the Soviet Union, well, at this point in, in the Russian Republic of the Soviet Union. And then, bada bing, bada boom, we're done. Bach is the one person who pushes back on this idea, saying, pointing out that there are huge bases yet to be taken. Moscow is still holding out, still Soviet armies still held in reserve, and he doesn't believe that England and America will simply give up after the fall of the Soviet Union. But they're still, they're, they're celebratory. Bach at night sneaks down to the Volga to take water from it so they can drink and write home to their families that uh, they've drunk from the Volga victoriously. Of course, they don't want to drink it due to cholera, although they call it Asiatic cholera, which... Uh, fair not want to drink it due to probable diseases in the river. Uh, obviously, it's got the Nazi tinge underneath it. Uh, but they all do. they all mix. Yeah, they. But instead of boiling it, they decided to mix it with a bunch of alcohol. Which I don't. I'm not a doctor, but I don't think mixing like a vodka amount of alcohol with water it does decontaminate it. Yeah, you um, don't know. But then again, you're not a doctor, so hey. Yeah, <laughs> not not certain. Forty percent's enough, but hey, you know, not a doctor. So they begin writing their families about this and the coming victory, with the except, notable exception of one lieutenant, Fritz Leonard. Fritz Leonard is a former SS propagandist, and the others actually quite fear him. It's rumored that he is responsible for the arrests of other officers. They know that he was involved with the torching of a village uh, who were, were was reputed to have had partisan involvement, and as well as the liquidation, so to speak, of 5,000 Jews in Ukraine. Other members who are not portrayed particularly well. Uh, Rumer, the chief of staff, who is noted, is an alcoholic. Bach found him irritatingly verbose. Like most narrow-minded people, he was extraordinarily self-assured. When he was drunk, he liked to hold forth about questions of strategy and international politics. So following from here, as they're just wandering around, they're all pretty much getting drunk, they're telling each other funny stories, they're stealing things by the boatload so they can mail it back to, to Germany. Bach and Leonard find some alcohol and they go to have a, a pretty self-assured conversation about the rightness of this of this new kind of Nazi way. At this conversation, Leonard is really fixated and one of the women they captured earlier keeps going back to her and how beautiful he is. You know, the obvious undertones there with the, with the implications of what he intends are. Uh, luckily for her, she's been moved far back uh, out of the way. And they have a conversation where Bach reveals to Leonard that He's not always been an, uh, a Nazi. In fact, when the Nazis came out, deeply doubted them, but now uh, sees as they march across the rightness of the way and says, we've come all this way without morality. Uh, in fact, it's this, this idea that holds everyone else back. 
and they, they, they're very drunk and they kind of go on their merry way. And that night, Bach, reflecting on it, writes in his diary, I think I'm coming to understand something important. It's not a, a matter of denying old-fashioned humanism. It's a matter of taking our understanding to a higher level. Today, Germany and the Führer are resolving a question of fundamental importance. Good and evil are not fixed categories. They are capable of mutual transformation. Like thermal and mechanical energy, they, neither, they are neither opposites, but different forms of a single essence. They are conventional signs. It is naive to assume they are in opposition. Today's crime is the foundation for tomorrow's virtue. The nation's energy assimilates good and evil, freedom and slavery, morality and amorality. It brings them together and makes them into a single pan-Germanic force. And may it be that we have now, here in the Volga, found a simple and definitive answer to a fundamental question. So that, that journal entry comes from a uh, slight pushback that Leonard puts on Bach. Bach really is, insinuates that violence is the main way of, of the German form and to, you know, hate love and I uh, hate those other things. And Leonard kind of, the SS man says, pulls him back and says, whoa, 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 not quite that. Look, it's not that we hate these other things. It's just that we have to figure out when they can be applied to whom they can be applied. Which leads Bach to this sort of, you know, okay, it's not that we need to reject humanism like I thought before. It's just that we need to realize that these ideas are actually more transient than we thought before. They're not actually eternally one way. I like that they took the man who was like the worst Nazi and made him be like, yeah. wait, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, this is something that's really interesting because this gets to something that I see, I've seen online a lot. So to get into like philosophical categorization before, you're familiar with like ideas. I mean, yeah, obviously you're familiar with like the broad categorization of modernist of philosophies. I, and, I've heard of, of an idea. There's <laughs> <laughs> an idea. Oh, perfect. Thank you, Socrates. <laughs> <laughs> like the idea of, of modernist philosophies and postmodernist philosophies. So, okay, you're familiar. I don't need to explain it. So these are things that are very confusing to people who are not in the field because it sounds weird uh like what's this weird post new most postmodernist stuff that created like cubism and futurism and all these arts that make me feel funny and i don't like mm -hmm. interestingly like yeah like 100 years onward but yeah similar i don't think anyone's calling a art postmodern but it makes me feel funny and i don't like it <laughs> all right fair, <laughs> fair point one thing that's always taught uh, marxism is often talked about as a postmodern philosophy and that's actually something that's i think is explored well here because Let's talk about what modernism and postmodernism for just for a second. As a yeah, broad sure, categorization, we've got three years of podcast time. Why not here? <laughs> oh, I'm about to I'm about to throw a grenade down the well and provide the most reductive answer that anyone <laughs> anyone has ever given for explaining these philosophies. Please, they're not coherent philosophies. As rather, they're, they're again they're like they're a categorization. I think it's better to like think of them as like we call the Byzantine Empire the Byzantine Empire, but they called themselves the Romans because they saw themselves as the continuation of the Roman Empire, which. They were. So you thought um, a way to make this more coherent <laughs> and more concise was to bring in the Byzantine Empire to talk about Marxism. <laughs> I just want to make it clear. <laughs> yeah, that's that's where I decided to go here. Yes. Okay. Uh, this is this is why I'm not allowed in academia. Um, <laughs> You've been out. So <laughs> modernism, modern or modernist philosophies are philosophies which under have an underlying idea of consistency about societal uh, social narratives that there are beliefs, et cetera, et cetera, which are consistent and can be ongoing and self-replicating. And those are maybe like good things, probably. Postmodernism, on the other hand, that group of philosophies tend to ask, well, these, okay, these modern myths, these mythologies we have about our 
people, our ethnicities, our nations, primarily our nations, but it could be for other things too, our, our subcultures, whatever. Are those true mythologies? Are How do these mythologies actually affect us? Do they affect us? Does the effect they have on us one that we simply believe it has, or is it just one that it is dictated down to us? So it's one that basically is questioning a lot of the assumptions that modernism has. So the irony of calling Marxism a postmodern philosophy is that Marxist philosophy is actually quite modernist in assuming how the relationship between uh, exploited to exploiter works. Of course, over time, things can change, but like the basic narrative of how classes relate, of course, sometimes having more classes, sometimes having less classes is relatively consistent. National socialism, on the other hand, is actually actually a postmodern philosophy. I should note uh, here that postmodernism is often thrown as an insult when really it shouldn't be. It's just a categorization, but that's neither here nor there. This no, it probably be, should be an insult, too. <laughs> it probably should be. <laughs> that's fair. The, the Nazi ideology underlying is basically a, a postmodern one in questioning, in trying to establish new forms of modernist philosophy, yes, but in, in questioning the former ones and trying to change ideas. In this case, like this is good and evil, but this is a work of fiction written by a Soviet author. But by trying to like create a new form of a state, trying to create these new forms of myth, trying to like break down those old ones, it is sort of, a, it is essentially kind of a, a postmodernist philosophy in its own way, which is an ironic way, an, an ironic... Um, I would say Gramscian, really. Gramscian. <laughs> yes, precisely. Thank you. Thank you, you're welcome. Does that clear anything up? Does that make it easier to understand? Yeah, does that... <laughs> so to understand Gramsci, you're going to need to go back and you're going to need to read all 600,000 pages of fragments in the prison notebooks, which are not related to each other, but kind of are. <laughs> it's really the way you bring them together where they create their meaning. So when Gramsci opened the wormhole to go back to the Byzantine Empire... Um, <laughs> no, but let me defend myself. Uh, yeah. No, I that's it. I'm just gonna leave it there. I don't remember where the oh, quote you're... was, but when okay. when one of the Germans was talking about the idea of German nationality and how it had, or the the idea of being German, basically, and how it had kind of like tried to usher in this new material existence, that was Gramscian. Mm. Didn't work, but it was Gramscian. Didn't work, but it was. But it was. We'll come to there because we've got some two really interesting bits of politics coming up. Ah, fine. So <laughs> first of all, we go from the politics back to human stories. Again, Grossman is giving everyone sort of a human background, a big asterisk there. So we follow one SS man. At this point, members of the SS are now serving alongside normal members of the Wehrmacht in order to now, raise morale. I guess I should clarify, if you're not familiar, the Wehrmacht and the SS were not one single organization. The Wehrmacht was the German army, so to speak, whereas the SS were a particular group of militants uh, who were used in a variety, could be used in a combat role, and some did serve in a combat role, uh, served as guards. Uh, they were subject to much more rigorous psychological and ideological indoctrination, were held to much higher standards of so-called racial purity, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They're the ones that your least favorite members of the internet are weirdly obsessed with and had the, you know, dark gray black uniforms with the death's head logos. Uh, so at this point, members of the, the SS who, who are, are part of the militant branch are serving alongside the, the Wehrmacht in order to raise morale. So we follow one of these members, uh, Stumpfa, who is, it's known it has a great love for his wife and family, always telling stories about his kids, has like a gigantic wallet that's just full of pictures of his wife. It's introduced that he's like, yeah, kind of like, he's really pretty soft-spoken, kind of a nice guy. And so it seems paradoxical that this man is a member of the SS. But it's written, it's not only Stumpfa's stories that were paradoxical. 
He embodied in his own being qualities one might have thought irreconcilable. This lover of his wife and children was capable of extraordinarily devil-may-care violence. On the rampage, he truly did become a devil. It was impossible to restrain him. And follow that, we, we hear stories of him, you know, getting drunk and shooting his pistol off just into random crowds of people or throwing grenades into buildings he comes across, etc., etc. Well, not into buildings, more into the bloom trees which stopped it four, oh, foot, yes. four feet in front of his head, giving himself a concussion. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, oops, known for getting wildly drunk, he's he's got these... He's got the element in him which you might expect from one in the SS. I think the interesting thing about the way Grisman portrays the SS is traditionally they're portrayed as, you know, hyper-competent, hyper-serious, very, you know, above life. And I think Grossman seeks to strike down this mythos by saying, by portraying them as normal people, albeit ones who had a certain psychological mindset which brought them to, to the SS. So following that, uh, as they're, again, they're just hanging out, they're just drinking, they're having parties. At some point, you follow Stumpfa as he has a conversation with uh, two other soldiers, Ledeker and Vogel. And they are kind of talking about what they're going to do after the war. And Stumpfa is really trying to get transferred to, actually, he's trying to get transferred to the death camps, although that's not what they called them. His own brother was a higher-ranking SS member and is now involved in kind of what they called the machine extermination of the Jews. And he, he says, you know, he doesn't know what it is, but he knows that there are factories of death and he wants to be transferred there because he knows that that's going to have better pay and going to have better outcomes. And Ledeker and Vogel are kind of like, why do you care? Just, you know, serve here. Just if you need money, just serve stuff back. And uh, Stumpfa gets angrier and angrier. And, you know, looking at the two of them begins to, even at some point, uh, calls them parasites. Uh, Vogel is the, the son of a factory owner and says, look, and Vogel is arguing that he's really not that well off. It's, you know, his, he's being harassed by, his father's being harassed by the state. He's really more like a normal worker at this point. And then Stumpfa, you know, he says, you know, well, unlike you two, I'm not worried about where I'm going to eat after the war. And so if you're being harassed by the government, good. I hope we come for you next. I hope you parasites are exterminated. Which, you know, understandably puts a damper on their drinking night. So following that, we go to one final vignette for this particular episode. We have a guard standing at attention outside by the name of Schmidt. Schmidt, it's noted earlier that Stumpfa is great at picking up on people's uh, habits, and he likes to make fun of them. And his favorite target is Schmidt. Schmidt is kind of a middle-aged guy. He is he should have been a higher rank, but he's been demoted because he was been uh, wanting in his service. He served in the first war, but it's rumored that he deserted. Uh, he makes all kind of kinds of jokes like, "Ah, oh, Stumpfa worked the night shift, so when he got married, he couldn't sleep with his wife for a whole year." Uh, hilarious jokes like that. And so now he finally joins Stumpfa, and he's standing outside at night, and he's just trying to get a cat to come over to him. And he just is thinking about how alone he feels and how deeply lonely it is. And it's through this chapter, we find that he was actually at one point a leader. He was a, a trade unionist, actually. Uh, following the, the First World War, he was a, a noted trade unionist, went to international conferences, was often asked after, did tons of work. But with the rise of the Nazis, he was uh, the trade unionist movement was obviously smashed. And uh, he, his own trade unionism had to be uh, basically hidden. And, and then he was called up to serve. And now he is made fun of at all times. And he hates the system he's in, but he's so deeply afraid and so deeply alone that he can't think of anyone else who might have thoughts like him or fear, you know, worries for the worker like he does in a way. And he's sort of one lone proletarian who's conscious of his class status among this, you know, army of uh, young soldiers. Which they actually is, radicalize uh, <laughs> <laughs> fellow soldier. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he was radical. Not radical. He was a trade unionist, not like a not a, a socialist necessarily. But I, I think the distinction should be made. Yeah, for now. After this, the order is given to attack the train station, which they've just heard has been taken by the Soviets. But for now, let's leave it there because we're getting we're going kind of long. And well, we only have a hundred pages left, so I mean, we got to save some good stuff for next time. We have eighty pages left. Yeah, a little less. I just can't believe every time that I say we're finally getting to the Battle of Stalingrad, we don't. <laughs> so I see you want us to talk about the Battle of Stalingrad. Would you like instead to hear about the about vignettes of Wehrmacht soldier life? So now I know debates? I named my book Stalingrad, <laughs> but here's the funny thing: it's not about Stalingrad. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, that's that's an accurate depiction of it, actually. Funny. It's Joke about was on me. The joke was on joke was on all of us. It's a depiction of people's lives, of beliefs, you know, across armies, across geographies, across. I mean, individual. I mean, I, I love this this chapter because, um, you know, obviously he's less charitable to the members of the Wehrmacht, but a, a, as much as he is committed to portraying complexity and conflict and differing human behaviors on the Soviet side, is seems it shows this equal commitment as he did before in in Berlin to uh, you know a life under. In the Wehrmacht, a life which I think at several points Schmidt feels like he's been deadened, like he's been made less human by this experience, which mm -hmm. is something that is often said about by on the Soviet side, like oh, being this Naziness, it makes you less than human, which you see reflected in this in these sort of um, soldiers as they feel. Well, Schmidt being the only trade unionist among them, the only one who doesn't kind of like enjoy the violence, enjoy um, what they do, feels really alienated which is about what they're doing. And he says that he was, you know, he's, he's a German. And this, this is true too, where you kind of see Grossman differentiating Germans from Hitlerites, where Schmidt is sort of a German nationalist. He says he, you know, in World War I, he wanted German victories. Um, but now he prays for, he prays for every German battle to be a loss. Um, and he feels bad when it's a victory. So he's sort of like, he's still a sort of German patriot, but he is not a Hitlerite. Yeah, and you see the mental gymnastics that other soldiers have to do to try to get themselves to believe in what they're doing. Right. It's, yeah, it's an interesting chapter. Yeah, and uh, sort of the fear in the ranks of, of so for example, the you know Fritz Leiner, the the SS propagandist. The others, you know, fear he might get us arrested. Although, of course, that's a feature of, and maybe this is an interesting conversation to have. The way that officers can obviously be arrested and shot on both sides, the differing ways that it's portrayed, where it's it's a dark ominous thing on the german side but on the for choikov when he signs the death warrant for two probable death warrant for two commanders we instead see him crying over it i mean self self-explanatory for why those things why they're portrayed differently but right. still interesting to note although i guess earlier in the in the book we do have i forget his name but a commander who signs death warrants and crayons which is a scene that was heavily criticized and was tried they tried to take out but was based on a real the person who was signing it was a real person and Grossman did either see or heard stories of him at some point having to like basically sign in like children's pencils because he didn't have any access to any other sign like death warrants and children's pencils because he didn't have access to other writing utensils mm -hmm. so there's still even 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 in the soviet side you do see some sorts of like very very dark comedy about that yikes indeed i feel like in this part you get the consolidation maybe of uh soviet ideas ideals perhaps and i feel like there were some sort of instances that we saw in the last couple of chapters that i were that i thought were kind of funny like when they were making fun of 
you just kind of see the sort of differences between the Soviet regiments and the Germans. Let's just say the interpersonal dynamics, maybe, uh, where you have the Soviet soldiers in a lot of the cases when they're kind of poking fun at each other. Well, it's not particularly nice, but it is uh, maybe you could say out of a, a place of mutual respect of still liking one another. And you get this prolonged scene here where uh, the Germans are making fun of each other, but Grossman says they often made vicious fun of one another. And basically the different regions are cutting each other down for not being truly German or, you know, this is Jewish section of Germany and this is the, you know, whatever, the melting pot of Germany. And as a result of that, this is lesser Germany compared to mm-hmm. our part of Germany, so they say. Right. The Alsatians, mm. everyone is like, well, of course, the Berliners are not, you know, they're a melting pot of, right. uh, of Italians and Jews and et cetera. And the Alsatians, don't even ask about them. They're not even really German. And of course, you know, the you know, the Volga Germans, the ones from the, the Germans that were in the Central Europe or in Eastern Europe, well, they're traitors to be kind of. Yeah. I feel like a lot of times with the, with the Soviet troops, you weren't necessarily getting a questioning of whether they belonged. You were kind of getting um, a slight mockery of some of their kind of quirky characteristics. It had nothing right. to do with whether they actually belong to that central group. And I think that's what Grossman's really trying to get at when he is talking about the different ethnic groups that are fighting in the war. I don't think it's supposed to be an erasure as much, at least to him, while he's writing this. I think it's supposed mm-hmm. to be right this sort of celebration that they're able to come together on this shared sort of set of values. I don't know that everybody from those countries, especially nowadays, would agree with that, but I think that's what he's going for. Mm-hmm. And I think that for him, that's one of the strong points. That's perhaps the single strongest point of of the Soviet army that is not present for the Germans. Yeah. I mean, in two, I say Grossman does provide character flaws, major ones for uh, his characters in the Red Army, but they seem to get resolved. Like recall Usarov, who was a great bully and, and stole things from refugees and was not portrayed well after he's kind of given a talking to by Vavilov many chapters ago. In this one, he's begun to you know follow Vavilov around almost. You know, it's noted that Vavilov reminds him of his father in such a way that it improves him. He's. It's been noted that he traditionally only worked for money, which is crazy. Of course, who could imagine <laughs> laboring only because you get paid? Not no. for the joy of labor, um, but seeing working with Vavilov setting uh, setting up their positions in the train station, he begins to think of the labor. He it's noted that he's like starts saying, "Oh, I always love labor." And it's noted that he's previously worked for money. It's he's not made fun of for this like not being true. It's like he's found his way in labor. He's found his way in seeing being kind of put in his place by Vavilov. And, you know, he shows him before they go to Stalingrad that he's gotten rid of. He's been shown to be very material obsessed before. Uh, before he gets to Stalingrad, he gets rid of all of it because he's no longer material obsessed. He only needs what he needs for the war. And he's being made a better person by Vavilov, similar to sort of how I think of Grossman's kind of theory of how people become better when they become subordinate to a, you know, a better person, as we saw in uh, Ivan Krimov's uh, you know, scenes in the coal mine when they're when the others who are all have their own individual failings become better people working under him which is not provided to the germans they're all individualized they're lonely they may not realize that they like you say they really kind of do hate each other that's a really eloquent way to put it 
I was kind of uh, picturing it sort of as like the Soviet Arrested Development. <laughs> where he says, I've always loved working with my hands. And then it, it you know, kind of pans over and there's like the Ron Howard narrator saying, well, he didn't. Um, and then it kinda, you know, it plays their quirky theme and plays it on into commercial. <laughs> Which would be good too. Yeah. As a matter of fact, Usarov had never loved working. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, I mean that that feels to your point. I think that's what a lot of this is, is as we come to the final book where we've had a lot of ideas coming up to this, but we're really getting to, to like the knife's edge of really like what is what is the difference? We've talked previously in big terms about Volk and Bach's scene previously. And I think the implicit parallel is there to the idea of Soviet, so to speak, Volk. But now it's really just like you're bouncing back and forth between like a battalion of Soviets and a battalion of Germans in the different way they are the night before combat and the, the contrast cannot be bigger. And it, it the comparison begs to be made. You cannot write this without obvious understanding of what these comparison of what these exact two troops who are about to go to battle against each other you know how it's going to be read and i think it's the really this knife edge of showing you okay this is the difference between the soviets and the and the germans although of course grossman himself would begin to soften that line later on but you know that's after the battle mm -hmm. yeah i think i made this point when i was talking about his relationship with time how it started to quicken when mm -hmm. he will do flashbacks and he started the novel kind of introducing you to scenes that would happen many many decades even before the character that you're introduced to would be acting right. in and now not so much flashback is right the way it's jumping around is just much more compressed mm -hmm. yeah i think instead of actually compressing time really he's expanding time by flipping around to different characters which is kind of an interesting device to draw out this one half of month of the war basically <laughs> right i mean we've gone from going for months at a time to like one night over the course of 60 pages yeah That's your point yeah <laughs> i mean i like it personally i think it's it's fascinating i think you talked previously about how a lot of features of this book feel deserved or how a lot of things that uh a lot of elements feel stronger because you had to go so far to get them. And I, I think I agree, especially in this this compression of time. Many ideas that have been brought up previously are now being refined and and like given to you again. And, you know, again, it's like trying to hammer that point home, but each time it gets finer and finer and down from big ideas, big conversations down to just what it is at the end of the day is some guys on one side, some guys on the other side, they all have really fast rock throwers and they're going to go kill each other. But it's really about the lives that happen between and what are the different systems that create who they are. And of course, the Night Before Combat's not about the tactics. It's about what their lives are like and how they react to this moment. Yeah, if we're comparing him to Tolstoy, for me, he's much more ideological than Tolstoy. However, right. I think he earns it better than Tolstoy, you know, is what I'll say. Like when you're reading War and Peace, you're like, oh my God. I get what you're saying about war. Can you please end the book? You didn't need two epilogues. I understand <laughs> this is a great novel, but you still didn't need two epilogues. <laughs> um, and it's, yeah, it's, I mean, I don't know. This is a lot more nuanced in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. I think the 20th century brings in a lot of different questions that kind right. of build on the same ones Tolstoy was thinking about. But, I don't know, the way that he kind of weaves in his sort of, his decision 
on the questions is, is a little bit different. And like I said, it feels, you know, it doesn't feel like it's just being completely hammered home to me. It feels kind of like he's holding my hand and leading me along to it <laughs> uh, before hammering my head into it. Right. I mean, I guess obviously you were supposed to infer the Germans were bad. So that kind of, you know, not a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of how like World War II books tend to go. More or less. I, well, I think it, it does have, you, you do see a lot of Grossman's particularities and the way that going back to Stumpfa, uh, that he's like a very normal person. And I think it's, I want to say it's in the hell of Treblinka where uh, Grossman accuses Nazism of, you know, not creating monsters, but rather, you know, he says it's one of its great crimes is that it allowed beasts who should be repressed and should be hidden away from society to, you know, come out and uh, bear their fangs essentially. Yeah. And I think you see that in that there are a lot of characters who are, we've talked about this idea of like ordinary dash, ordinary, ordinary dash heroic, a lot of corollary of the ordinary dash beastly in one of Grossman's favorite yeah. terms of those people like Stumpfa, who is ordinary, but you know, he's also just ready to like, just if he gets drunk, hell yeah, I got a gun. I got some people. Let's go. Let's see what happens. And it that does you don't though, doesn't it make you monster. think like if you could picture every horrible, horrible person mm. that you went to high school with and you're like, <laughs> if you were to give them unlimited power and just tell them that what they were doing was correct, don't you kind of think you could see, well, I'm not saying Nazi war crimes happen, but let's just say right. some of the anecdotes that were kind of put forth in this book of just like random military boy going out and shooting oh. stuff and throwing grenades around, like absolutely you could see that happening. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that's like more normal in warfare than not. I mean, in, sure, in sure. World War II, I mean, you, you don't need to go over the the European theater, but just like the amount of atrocities <laughs> that happened yeah. by the Japanese army inflicted upon China, by the Japanese inflicted upon U.S. soldiers, by the U.S. soldiers inflicted upon Japanese soldiers, by U.S. soldiers upon civilians in the Pacific Islands. Yeah, you, you do see the ordinary dash. I mean, like, I, I think it's, I want to say it's in um, the book. Race and Power in the Pacific, where the author points out that it was not uncommon for U.S. soldiers to spend, send back like skulls from like killed Japanese soldiers that like boiled out to use as like decorations at home. It's hmm. like a very hmm. ordinary dash. Not, not, not I, I guess maybe now now we're kind of like diffusing the term because obviously Grossman means this in a very specific sense because his concept of beastliness is just that there are certain beastly people who like the Nazis allow to come to power. And I guess now we're kind of talking about like war empowering that, which is slightly different than what he's pointing out. But in this particular case, I think it's applicable. <laughs> it's all kind of about the situations in which you can place people in, I think. Right. For the Soviets, it's a great thing. For the Nazis, not so much. People are still people, but, you know, it does depend on what the situation that they're in, what does that bring out? Mm -hmm. Right. And what in the, in the beliefs of, of the beliefs you take, the beliefs of your society you take in that situation, because you've got the Soviets and okay. In real life. Yeah. The red army did commit a lot of war crimes too. However, we're talking about the portrayal in the book specifically. I don't know. I didn't see anything in the book about that. Oh no. Well, I'm going to say like in, and uh, in the book, the Soviet kidding. army does not command. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Fair point. <laughs> in this case, when Grossman is portraying it, the, the Soviet army is coming in, not committing war crimes, and the, and the Wehrmacht is coming in and committing war crimes. And I think it's a drawing forth, like, oh, the ideology of your society affects how you're acting in these wartime situations. Yeah, there's obviously a lot of questions to be called into place on uh, <laughs> ethics. Right. Shall we say. Yeah. And how, how obviously Grossman does portray the war very well, uh, but, you know, like... 
I think our term is for Grisman has been has been apt so far as a writer or as a good writer, a great writer, in fact, but a writer of Empire nonetheless should be should still be uh, admired, really admired for what he he did and what he's writing in here and what he tried to bring in also looked at in a critical way. And you can love something and look at it critically at the exact same time without any contradiction. Yeah, I think like I think it's interesting. I, I just personally, I don't think it's that bad. I mean, I th- I'd like to examine it and think about it. I, I could have been so much worse is all I'm saying. Oh, yeah. Like reading through so this, like, it could have been so much worse. Yeah, I, it should be absolutely commended for, you know, how well it even stands up to today and mm-hmm. I think under scrutiny for, for how it portrays the war. You know, not perfect, but man, I would say probably leagues, leaps and bounds better than most other stuff you still see from this yeah, era. Yeah, Absolutely. Happy to have read it. Happy to have been there. Not in World <laughs> War II, but to have been there reading it. Right, right, of course. Would not like to be in war. <laughs> Just going to put that out there in case you couldn't. Yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah, not a good time. No, not really. No, not not in the whole. I mean, that's not really the vibe I got from this book. It's not really the vibe I got from my years studying conflict as my degree either, I would say, or covering it in the radio, covering like Syrian Yemen for radio. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. This is this is not related, yeah. but there, go for the, it. Go this for is it. To, to the thought back to what we were just talking about. There's the point where right after what you had read about the the roads of the East Bank and they don't lead back home, and if we follow them, everything's lost forever. And blah, 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 blah. so <laughs> you know, blah, blah blah blah. You know how they were talking in World War Two. There is at the very end of this chapter, home again. Said someone in a low voice, Russia and Vavilov understood that here in Stalingrad he was being given back the key to his native land and the key to his home and to everything most holy and dear. For Vavilov, this was all clear and simple. And thousands of other soldiers may well, in their heart of hearts, have felt something similar. And this is what just, like, if you didn't write Russia, it actually would have been fine. (laughs) If we're just, like, like, I don't think every soldier there, like, all the the Ukrainians were thinking, ah, yes, Russia, thank God we got that back. (laughs) All the ones um, from Siberia, yeah, probably like right. ethnic I, minorities. Yeah, they're like, uh, uh, what do you mean you don't want to go further east? That's where my <laughs> home is. Um, yeah. Part of part of Russia, actually, there's a lot of stuff that's east of Russia. Like, there's a lot of stuff that's actually east of Russia. Yeah, like I know. Multiple they're like, nations. dude, unfold your map. Just keep looking. It just keeps going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I will say, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. There good just like, there's up. just like a few things where it's like, okay, I get what you mean, but just like say it a little different. How about that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, talking about writer vampire as, as they all were, as you had to be really, you are correct. There are, I wouldn't say that... he's like writer of empire. He's just like writer with like empire assumptions, maybe. I feel like those things are kind of the same. Like being in the center of empire sure. makes you a writer of empire unless you're explicitly like an anti-empire one. Because it's gonna be it's gonna be coloring your perspective unless it's like you're explicitly moving away from that. My thing is just like I don't think that Grossman for me is like he he doesn't strike me as someone who's writing to be political. Like he's not the the sole purpose of his exploration is not what is political. It is more what is human. Mm-hmm. And so right. for that reason, to me, he is separate from Soviet Empire. He is something a little bit different. But he still does have those like empire assumptions and understandings in his writing. But I'm not a Grossman scholar, and I really don't know <laughs> that much about Grossman to be making these <coughs> gross assumptions about him. 
I really do enjoy reading him, though, and I can't yeah. wait till we get to uh, Life and Fate, until we start the Grossman podcast, the Gross cast. The Gross cast. Gross cast. I'm looking forward to it. I do think that's an interesting point. I, I do. I would like mildly push back because I, I would think, don't you, well, my, my, my thought is that I do agree with you for the most part on what you said. But I think when you have these assumptions built in, even though if you're more interested in engaging with other stuff, the assumptions, if they are indistinguishable from other like explicit writers of Empire and they become baked in as assumptions, I feel like that's not intentionally the same and definitely should be understood differently, but it kind of functions the same way. Like, to your, to your, let's go back to that passage. Like, that passage could be read just, I don't know, like change out Stalingrad for. Donetsk, and this could be used as like propaganda today in like Russia in support of the, you know, the invasion of Ukraine. Like the language is like exactly the same, especially now the Holy One takes on a different angle here. Cause I feel like when, yeah. when the assumptions are built in like that, even if it's not the intent, I see your point. I think they should be understood slightly differently. But if they are not challenged and if they're not, it's not the author's intent to challenge them, it's just like not their concern. That kind of makes them. A writer of empire they're they are writing from the empire from the periphery from the benefit of how their perspective goes and that benefit means that they can write and not kind of ignore that too it can be in the background for them maybe it's difficult too because grossman's you know obviously an ethnic minority and like struggled in that but i I don't know that's how i look at it but i, I get your perspective i don't think you're wrong i think it's very difficult to disentangle soviet literature from individual authors beliefs Right. And I think like when you're saying like, yes, this passage totally could be taken and justified in another context, but I think you have to look at the book as a whole because mm. yeah, you could take this passage and you could like some of the passages we've discussed, you could take them and you could put them with a more, let's say like nationalist author or something like that. And you might be able to say, okay, these fit similar themes, but I just feel like a lot of authors that might be upholding or justifying or advocating for like the absolute Soviet ideal probably would not be trying to humanize soldiers in the Nazi side. And I do feel like Grossman does that at several points. Yeah. And so that's, I feel like that's a pretty bold, I mean, we're talking about like, it's like a little bit different than ethnicities and nationalities and the Soviet empire. It's different. Of course. I, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, that's fair. It, it, it's 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 this is a complex one too. I, I I definitely see where you're coming from, too. Yeah, and, I'm I'm kind of yeah. I'm kind of interested. I feel like I need to read more on Grossman to really work it out. But I'm not inclined towards saying he's like the like. Well, let's just say like, is he the the Soviet Tolstoy? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> no, I think we we have to go back to a formulation that Tolstoy is the uh, imperial Grossman. <laughs> Well, that is true. That is true. Yeah. I did hear that somewhere. Oh, it was this I podcast. Did. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We heard it elsewhere. We got to we gotta spread our sources around. <laughs> I'm going to have our sleep rage and start planting that in keywords on various social media. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take whoever tried to hack our store and uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. set them on that. That was wild. I guess we made the big time. Someone's trying we to hack the our big store time, now. Boys. Anyways, <laughs> I feel like... I had like some passages to mention, but they weren't like my favorites. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's I feel like was... the discussion on um, Empire is, is super interesting. Yeah, I agree. I, there's I, if we can come back to this sometime, sometime in the future, there's some books on Empire and literature I'd like to talk about. I think could be I think with this in mind, and maybe after when we do inevitably do 
War and Peace, it'll be a really interesting conversation to have. I'm looking forward to reading War and Peace again, for sure. Yeah. I'm looking forward to finally getting all the way through the second epilogue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, didn't you, you told me, Matt, he's like, for so long, he's like, yeah, I feel so bad. I'd never really finished the book. Then he goes back and looks and like, yeah, I didn't finish the last three pages of the second epilogue, so I didn't. Take- <laughs> <laughs> what if Tolstoy drops some new insights in there? <laughs> that, I guess that's true. Yeah, Tolstoy does go forward and backward on his beliefs on, a di- on the drop of a dime. So That's what he's known for. He's known for really reversing. beliefs in in he's not very yeah he's not known for being very strong-handed or anything like that (laughs) in in the in the the long term but yeah point taken (laughs) (laughs) but anyways but anyways so coming up next uh part 10 the final part of stalingrad oof but not the last we'll be hearing from stalingrad grossman related content no we have a, a few tricks up our sleeve that you'll be hearing about in the future, mm-hmm. in the near future, hopefully, before we round out the year, this year, year two of Tipsy mm-hmm. Tolstoy. Oh my goodness. Year, year two. two. Year two, I'd say season two, but actually every single episode in our catalog is still categorized as season one. <laughs> yep. And it's too late to switch it now. So it's all one big season, baby. <laughs> <laughs> the endless season of, of uh, Tipsy Tolstoy. That's right. I'm looking forward we never to go it. out of style. Me I'm too. looking forward to it. But before we finalize part nine of Stalingrad, Cameron, I gotta ask, mm-hmm. on a scale from one to eight, mm-hmm. which sure. V are you? <laughs> oh, I am I am all the way at V8. Let me tell you, you this V8? is my second yeah, I, I this is my second V8 of the day. Ooh. I've had five servings of vegetables uh, lacking oh, in their baby. fiber content, however, uh, because okay. they were yeah but still i'm still pretty happy with this uh, i know you were already what you said four jack and coke steep when we started could have been could have um, been could have been yeah i don't know i think yeah i think you started drinking we started playing games earlier today which is a couple hours ago no uh, it was after was it after okay don't slander oh, me <laughs> well, it was like 4 p.m your time that wasn't that late to start yeah, i'm drinking. not saying i've never started drinking at 4 p.m my time i'm just saying that this day i did not start drinking at 4 p.m it's, my time. it's 4 p.m a shameful time to start drinking uh, i mean if it's a work day i guess yeah that's a little bit different but it wasn't a work day today let's just put that out there <laughs> yeah weekends all rules are off listen on the university level what is a work day <laughs> you make a good point i do bye uh, but how about how about you now that you are an indeterminate number of jack and coke steep how do you feel indeterminate that's true the limit cannot be approached you are an eight <laughs> on the v scale i'd say i'm an eight mm-hmm. on the yeltsin scale i'm, I'm pretty Beautiful. up there i'm having a good time talking about grossman i'm like th- this podcast has made me think like i might want to write something about grossman i feel like he's just so critically understudied and i mm-hmm. you know i don't want to encourage cameron to also do a phd in russian <laughs> literature because it's like why would you do that <laughs> yeah i mean no offense to me but why would you do that but i i want you to get into it so you can write some stuff about gross because you have such interesting takes and i really want to i want to read it thank you well maybe we can, we can we can start the gross cast in the grossman journal once to come around there's probably not a grossman journal but there's probably i don't know i don't know I don't I know heard if you to say that there's a Grossman have... podcast. There's definitely not. Yeah, I don't even know what. Well, when you when you when you write something, I'll we'll we'll figure out where to publish it. It sounds like a plan. It's good. It's a good time. 
It's a good. It's a great time. Always we a great time. time. Well, not always a great time. It's always an interesting time with Grossman. It's an interesting time. Yes. Yeah. Grossman's. I think Grossman's. It's also actually. I guess this is a parallel with him and Tolstoy. We never discovered. We never talked about. But whenever in like Anna Karenina, anything weird that Levin does happens, you can always be certain it's something that Tolstoy did and wrote into the book. <laughs> oh the, yeah. The same is also true in in Life and Fate, where anytime anything weird happens, you can be you can be certain it's something that he either saw or he did. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. I wanted to read a quick letter that we got from oh, a fan yes. and patron Lou, one of our good pals, Lou, who's been a patron for, I don't know, like forever. So thank put you, Lou. Respe- put some respect on that, Lou. Lou says in an email to tipsytolstoy at gmail.com, thanks for the best read in years, guys. My gratitude also extends to the Chandlers, of course, for the excellent translation and definitive edition. I was aware of Grossman's life and fate, but it never was in my queue. I'm starting right in on it after finishing Stalingrad in record time with the added benefit that I'm reading them in the right order. You're welcome. I (laughs) once watched a 2011 Russian TV production of Life and Fate that was showing on Amazon Prime for a while, but it cut off halfway through and I don't know what happened with the rest of the episodes. IMDb is no help, of course. It's still listed, but not available on Prime. Lou says, keep up the good work. Thank you, Lou. I needed it. I needed to know somebody was listening to every part of this because, oh <laughs> my God, it's so many episodes, but it is fun. It's a really good time. And we're glad for those of you who are coming along for the ride and hopefully there have a good time so like Lou and us. Many of you, you freaking liars. You really <laughs> get me every time that we start like a Dostoevsky thing and we have like four times our normal view count. And then like the second episode, it like goes back to normal and I'm like, okay, so it's really just like... It's the fake fans on episode one that come in, <laughs> but the real fans by episode nine of Stalingrad, you're all still here, and we appreciate all of you. Drop us a line, tipsytolstoy at gmail.com. Want to hear what you think about the series? Want to hear what you think about Grossman? Is it your first time reading it? I don't know. Let me know. I'll read Please you on the podcast. I'll respond give us to your you. thoughts. I'll criticize you. <laughs> <laughs> I won't criticize you, probably. Depends. Depends, depends. what you send. Really depends what you say. So uh, I if guess you're looking for messages... criticism, creative feedback on your writing, you know, go ahead and send it to <laughs> same email. Honestly, I get so much weird stuff in this email. Like, uh, aside from, can we find here serious man and the amount of like, <laughs> crypto scams that I get invited to join, which, right. you know, alas, let me drop those Tissy Tolstoy NFTs, baby, just you wait. Um, <laughs> sometimes I get weird requests of like information about just like random Russian lit. Or people want like suggestions on what to read, and I'm just sitting here typing back because I feel guilty about not responding. <laughs> <laughs> but I digress. Yeah. Write us. Or else. Email us. Tipsy Toast. Or at Gmail. Should, should we get a P.O. box so people can write us? We were going to, but you're going to need to subscribe to us on Patreon <laughs> because we're already behind on our bills. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was that was The Monopoly an Man's editor. coming to break each of our legs. <laughs> <laughs> it's not good we, i've already we've already lost our fingernails we can't we, if we don't have our legs we can't oh podcast. you lost your i lost my eyelashes i didn't know you lost oh, your fingernails. that's too bad i guess yeah, they want to blink to yeah get a little creative that makes sense mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah you gotta switch it up <laughs> before we let you go we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons we've got Jeff, Madeline, and Janice, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, Jack, Paige, Jesse, Lou, Irini, Brandon, Allison, Cole, Elise, Mysterious, Enerdu, Joanne, Yitza, Alex, Stephanie, Julie, Eli, Caitlin, Brett, Isaac, Austin, Zachary, Peck, Rob, Maya, Amanda, Blake, Shannon, Jay, Elizabeth, and Jacob. Podcasting 
is not free. Now that we pay for editing, you know, it's even less free. Uh, in grad school, it doesn't pay very well. Sorry, I had to censor what I was going to say because I know the editor is going to hear this. Um, grad school still doesn't pay very well. So, you know, if you're looking to join with our current patrons to keep the show running and help us cover some costs, we would be so, 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 so appreciative. Take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy if you want to become one of the Tolstoy boys. You like that? As you like it. That's a, a good, that's a good, I like that. I like that. I like the little, mm. keep, them on, keep us on our feet. A little flair for you. Move like a butterfly, staying like a bee. Mm-hmm. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or on Twitter at Tipsy Tolstoy. You can also join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon.